I'm delighted that you've come uh, this evening to this uh, uh, Teatro Mundi and LSE Literary Festival event about Venice. Uh, we're celebrating a new book on Venice, uh, and we have people here who have, uh, are deeply engaged uh, with the problems that Venice uh, faces today. Um, uh, the title of this session is called The Stones of Venice. I think at least that's the title. And that should remind us all of the wonderful uh, Ruskin uh, uh, book of that, that title. It's a wonderful book, although his time in Venice was a very traumatic one for him. He, his marriage broke up, but he discovered the Gothic and a uh, very Venetian story of, of loss and, and gain. But that discovery was of something everyday, quotidian, that um, a way of building and a craftsmanship which uh, Venetians themselves in the 19th century looked as, on as rude and primitive. And one of the striking things about the city for a long time is that it didn't know properly how to measure its own value. That its showy aspect uh, uh, was the measure of what it was, which is not a true measure. And that's really the theme of what we're going to be talking about tonight. The Venice that lies behind that showy measure. Uh, so I would like to begin with the person whose book we're celebrating um, uh, tonight, Polly Cowles. Uh, is the book out? Yes. Oh, good. And oddly enough, is it for sale? I certainly hope it is somewhere. Good. So Polly will. <laughs> so Polly will sign books. Polly is a anthropology graduate of this august institution. Uh, so. Um, uh, she speaks to us in a way coming home rather than coming from Venice. So, Polly, would you, you like to begin? Yes, I'm going to put myself up here. I was in Venice last week, um, and uh, bizarrely, having lived there for quite some time, I'd never visited the Ducal Palace, so I thought it was about time I went there. Um, as a lot of you probably already know, you enter through a monumental courtyard and you then follow a route through ever more enormous and lavish and empty halls. And the grandeur is overwhelming, um, and so is the sterility. One then passes over the narrow passageway of the Bridge of Sighs into the prisons, which is a chilling maze of empty cells um, which uh, mirror uh, the, the empty halls of power back on the other side of the bridge. In the streets surrounding the palace, the city is at its most reduced. One friend of mine who lives nearby describes herself as living in the industrial zone, and well she might, thousands of people uh, are processed in a more or less identical fashion here every day of the year. They're fed, they're watered, they're given temporary accommodation and some kind of heritage-based experience plus uh, a dollop of uh, luxury goods shopping in, in for the bargain. And life in the industrial zone is a highly manufactured experience. 
So inside you've got the halls of extinct power. Outside the streets have become thoroughfares for a transient people who, in their role as tourists, have no serious investment in the culture of the city. Today we're asking, is there a future for Venice's unique community away from the museums and palaces? And I want to focus on this notion of a unique Venetian community. Uh, I think there's an intense anxiety, both inside and outside Venice, about the precise nature of this uniqueness. The implicit suggestion is that there's a uniform, recognisable quality of Venetianness, which exists in intimate relationship to the built environment, the stones. And this feels uncomfortably close to me, uh, in spirit, to heritage tourism, which typically packages up the past in desirable gobbets ready for consumption. By describing Venetian residents as unique, we're bundling them up in the same package, and we're dealing a mortal blow, really, to the possibility of a diverse and evolving community. For proof, if proof were needed, uh, we would never talk about London's unique community, uh, but rather about its many different communities, which feed into the city to make it so much bigger than the sum of its parts. Uh, Giorgio Agamben has asked why the centres of Italian cities have become centri storici, uh, historic centres. Why are places which have always been a nexus of activity, invention, communication and potential, uh, why are they now signposted as monuments to the past? Uh, It's become increasingly difficult, I think, to lead a normal residential life in Venice. Uh, It's always been an extraordinary physical environment. Uh, It's now a historical anachronism. Um, And this is a deadly cocktail for the living population Mm. of the city. You have beauty plus anachronism equaling the most intransigent version of heritage imaginable. Um, In Venice, real ordinary life appears increasingly quaint or curious, and the citizens of Venice have become a sort of collateral event to the cult of the stones. Um, Worse still, the allure of the stones is suffocating the very lives which give them cultural meaning. I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from my book about this dissonant counterpoint between place and community as I experienced it when I first went to live in the city. Within weeks of my arrival in the Calle del Vin, the landscape of the street has changed. First, the kindly, harassed woman who runs the stationery shop announces that she is closing down her business and moving to the mainland. A month later, the crowded little shop, always cheerfully packed with schoolchildren, buying the inordinate quantities of stationery devoured by the Italian school system, is empty. It's not long before a young Chinese man is to be seen at a lone desk in the otherwise bare premises. A few perspex frames have been placed in the window, along with a sign explaining that he will frame photographs on order. His wife, with a baby on her hip, appears occasionally. Soon after that, an antiquated haberdasher's shop halfway up the Calais announces its intention to close with a small handwritten card in the window. The place smells of old fabric and old cardboard, and behind the counter there sits a quiet, smiling, plainly dressed girl whom I imagine to be the proprietor's granddaughter. The dozens of little wooden drawers full of buttons and pins and threads must have been stopped years before her birth. Both events inspire in me a feeling of anxiety, panic even, a sense that no sooner have I arrived in Venice than the last precious scraps of real Venetianness are disappearing before my very eyes. 
filled with the gloomy conviction that I have, as it were, arrived a day late for the party, I begin to notice just how many shut-up premises there are in the city and how many of those that are still open sell one of four commodities, pizza, ice cream, glass or masks. This is when I begin to ask myself what it is precisely I want of this place. The fact is, what I want, crave even, is an authentic Venice where real Venetians live real lives. And what, after all, is that? I've been learning how to vulgar or row in the traditional Venetian style. One day, I row up the Grand Canal with my friend Jane. She is steering at the back and I am at the front of her sandalo. It would be impossible to say how many times we're photographed in the 20 minutes it takes us to get from Cadoro to the Salute. Those tens of people clamouring to record their Venetian experience can have no idea that their subjects are an English and Australian woman navigating their boat, much, it must be said, to the hilarity of the gondolieri, taxi boat drivers, delivery boat men, and other assorted real Venetians who call out good-humouredly to us as we zigzag between the palaces. So what is it we're after when we hunt for the authentic? The very notion of the genuine original is problematic where Venice is concerned. How could there ever have been a truly Aboriginal inhabitant in this particular Garden of Eden, an artificial construction on water, a meeting place between East and West in a millennial flux of trade and war? Ha! snorts Giovanni, the historian. True Venetians? There are five of them. This is a city where even the locals have to search hard to find the genuine article. And then, the very last of their race, they count them on the fingers of one hand. Walking along a back canal one sunny morning, I pass two men sitting on upturned oil cans. One of them is large, black-bearded and piratical. The other is small with a typically wiry Venetian build. They're talking with animation in the thick, consonantal Venetian dialect. As they bellow amiably at each other, the pirate is sorting deftly through streams of hundreds of very small crabs, scuttling and slipping down a long metal tray that he has balanced across his knees. The other man is untangling a mutted bunch of fishing nets. How delighted I am to have come upon this scene. How sentimentally gratified, hungry as I am, for proof that I have not, after all, arrived in Venice too late to witness and perhaps even participate in its real life. These men are heaven-sent, real Venetians doing real Venetian things. Not long after this, I'm out with a friend strolling among the pines at the edge of the city. A little way ahead, there's a short, fat old woman with an equally short and fat dog of uncertain provenance, which proceeds to poo abundantly in the middle of the path. The woman seems not to register the steaming heap her dog has deposited and waddles on. Signora, calls out my friend, your dog. She smiles and points. The old woman turns on us with a look of undiluted contempt. I, she says, live here. (laughs) So do I, replies my Scottish friend. And we need to clean up after the dogs. There are lots of kids playing around here. I, spits the woman, definitively, have lived here for 79 years. Sacafisula is a residential area that sits at the end of the Judeca. In April, I am on the Vaporetto heading towards the Saka and see that somebody has draped a vast banner across the trees growing along the edge of the water. It reads, No alle crociere, no to cruise ships. This is a protest against the damage caused by the liners that blunder daily up and down the Judeca Canal. 
The banners could not be better positioned. The pinprick figures lining the decks, listening to the booming guided commentaries, watching the pinnacles of the fabled city passing by, can easily make out the big red letters. But there is one problem. How many of those people can read Italian? Around the same time, the newspapers publish an extraordinary <coughs> photograph taken in quite another part of the planet. The picture has been shot from an aeroplane flying low over the Amazon jungle. Below, in a forest clearing, there is a group of naked men daubed in bright red paint. They are shooting up at the aircraft with bows and arrows. They are, the caption explains, members of a tribe that has never before had contact with modern society. Desperately trying to ward off these intruders from the sky, their arrows are not even touching the sides of the plane. It occurs to me that those fishermen chatting in the sun on the fundamenta might begin to appear as precious, as rare, and as doomed as the painted men of Amazonia. This is all part of an old debate about the authentic, a conversation as revealing of cultural anxiety, who am I, where do I belong, as it might be of cultural breakdown. And of course the question of what is or is not authentic will inevitably come to a head at times and in places where the authentic status quo seems to be radically threatened. Meanwhile, back in the Calais d'Elvine, new developments are underway. The young Chinese man, who has tried without success to fish in the stream of the passing tourist trade with his photo frames, has decided on another strategy. He has reinvented the wheel and filled his shop with pens, papers and folders until it is as stuffed with stationery as ever before and the schoolchildren are going back there for their supplies. Shortly before Christmas, to my great relief, the shy, plain Haberdasher's granddaughter emerges from her chrysalis. The cotton reels and buttons, it is true, have been consigned to history, but the granddaughter has not. Sounds of sawing and drilling begin to come from the boarded shop. After several weeks, all is revealed. A poster in the window announces the opening of a clothes shop. On the first day of the new enterprise, the haberdasher's granddaughter is wearing tight jeans and vertiginous stilettos. Her face is brighter and bigger with makeup. In the window, headless female dummies sport plunge neck tops and gold trimmed mini skirts, while their muscular, plasticated male counterparts appear in t shirts with slogans like Hollywood Look or James Dean Bikers Academy emblazoned across their ample chests. This opening is a triumph for authentic Venice, though it is doubtful that any tourist will ever take a picture of the haberdasher's granddaughter's window display. The clothes she is selling are the preferred uniform of a certain section of indigenous Venetian society, so it's likely that her business will thrive. Just metres of the main tourist drag, the real Venice has fought back, and for now, at least, it has won. Just to finish, any hope that Venice might survive and grow lies in championing not the unique, but the ordinary, the gallimorphy of elements that make up a rich living community. Unless the definition and usages of Venetian heritage are radically reframed, the interests of community and heritage tourism will remain in fundamental opposition. And unless the monuments and places again become home for a vital community, Venice and the Venetians will be deep frozen in actual and metaphorical historic centres, vacuum-packed for tourism. Without the oxygen of real life, heritage is as empty as the staterooms of the Palazzo Ducale and quite as deathly as the labyrinth 
of its prison cells. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, There's a lot to talk about. Um, General, do you want to go next? Um, I'd like uh, next to introduce uh, Jonathan Keats, um, an old friend of mine. Uh, I'm trying to think of what uh, to say about you that uh, is discreet. (laughs) He is an amazing uh, writer who uh, has written equally about... uh, um, Music. He's written a great biography of Handel uh, and a, a novelist who is now the head of Venice in Peril. And um, I think uh, he's going to tell us a little about uh, why Venice is in peril um, and what his organization is trying to do about it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my, uh, I and Venice have what Shakespeare in Measure for Measure calls an old contracting. We go back a very, very long way. Uh, and I have all sorts of reasons uh, to be grateful to her and her people, uh, which are far too personal to uh, air on an occasion like this. But... Um, in the fullness of time, you may get to know about them. Um, the, um, uh, everybody with Venice has uh, a the experience, I think, uh, everyone who doesn't live in Venice has the experience um, that um, Henry James had with Tennyson. Henry James, as a young American novelist, coming to live in England in the 1870s, um, wanted to meet all the great uh, famous writers that he had read while in America. And one of the people he wanted to meet was Tennyson. Uh, He made a pilgrimage to Tennyson's house on the Isle of Wight, um, and he came away bitterly disappointed He said, Tennyson, the trouble with Tennyson is that he isn't Tennysonian enough. Um, And in a way, uh, this is an experience that people have with Venice. It it is such an artificial construct in their minds. It is such a mythical place that their actual encounter with it... uh, deludes them in various ways or actually turns them in a different direction. It plays games with them. Um, The Venice in Peril Fund, I I, I want to say a few words about this, about Venice in Peril, uh, which will seem as if I'm actually uh, a sort of subversive villain following what Polly has just said. By the way, I'm going to shamelessly puff Polly's book. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I would say that, wouldn't I, because I reviewed it. Um, but, uh, but I think it's tremendous, uh, and uh, it's required reading uh, for anyone interested in modern Venice. 
Um, but the Venice in Peril Fund is an organization which deals, first and foremost, with that very heritage Venice which Polly was talking about. Uh, a friend of mine, um, the architect, David Chipperfield, said to me, uh, why don't you change the name? Why, 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 why do you call it Venice in Peril? Uh, it gives completely the wrong impression. Venice is not in peril. Hang on. Um, I said, uh, why change the brand? We are an established brand. We were the first uh, of the international private committees following the flood of 1966 to uh, come to Venice's rescue and to help the Venetians do what they could not otherwise have done as regards financing the maintenance and safeguard of their built environment. It is, of course, still in peril 50 years later. We're coming up to our uh, 50th anniversary um, in a year's time. Uh, and continuity uh, and the heritage of the built environment. I hate that word, heritage. It reminds me of sort of Laura Ashley tea towels. Um, put, it, uh, put it to one side and actually say the substance of why people uh, come to Venice, why uh, Venice itself holds, has such an extraordinary hold over people is this, this amazing built environment. Uh, the challenge, of course, to the whole idea of keeping Venice upright, which the Venice in Peril Fund is involved with in so many different ways, comes from a variety of different causes, among them mass tourism, among them a kind of uh, sophisticated Philistinism which has evolved a modern argument uh, deriving, I suppose, ultimately from the futurists at the beginning of the 20th century um, for believing that the whole place should be allowed to fall down, that it should uh, just crumble into the sea and that St Mark's should end up as a, a cathédrale engloutie uh, this submerged uh, wonder once the glory uh, of, uh, of Italy now below the waves uh, and that the Grand Canal should be bricked over um, and turned into a kind of skating rink and if you want to go to Venice then go to Las Vegas uh, and see the reproduction of Venice there I'm afraid I find that kind of sophistication uh, equivalent uh, to a form of snobbery. And it seems to me that it is a sacred cause to try, as the Venice in Peril Fund and its sister organisations, uh, the French the, uh, the uh, Australians, the Swiss, the Germans, etc., are doing uh, to try to keep 
it in being, to safeguard Venice, uh, whatever happens. The, the point, however, of an organisation like Venice in Peril is not to stop at either a certain historical period or at an idea that only the buildings and only the works of art are sacred. Um, I myself wrote a book a few years ago about an event in the 19th century, the Siege of Venice in 1848-9, which most English-speaking readers know absolutely nothing whatever about. They have no concept that anything after the 18th century exists in Venice which is worth saving or which is worth uh, absorbing into the collective historical memory and memory of, of human experience within the city. And I wanted to underline this very idea of continuity and Venetian involvement in the wider history of Italy and Europe at that time. And this is why I think it's tremendously important uh, that an organisation like Venice in Peril involves itself not just with the wonderful works of the Middle Ages, uh, the superb expressions of Renaissance art and architecture, but also with the industrial archaeology of Venice in the 19th and 20th century. And we ourselves are involved at the moment in restoring a huge crane in the arsenal that was built on Tyneside by the, the firm of Armstrong Mitchell, now Vickers Armstrong, um, and which is still there and still in working order. It's very rusty, but it's a phenomenal shape against the sky. And we're, we're doing this partly because it seems to us very important uh, to emphasise this idea of the continuity of Venetian experience. The other thing with which we're much preoccupied is the idea stressed so brilliantly by Polly's book of uh, Venice as a living community. We have already done one social housing project and I, as chairman of Venice in Peril, am extremely anxious that we should do another and that this should actually generate an impetus in uh, the locality uh, and in uh, the uh, um, community of Venice uh, for actually peopling the city uh, with residents rather than people who simply uh, use these places uh, for these spaces for holiday lets, um, flats they live in for perhaps one month a year or something like that. Um, and this is uh, another aspect of Venice in Peril's activities. Are we foreigners interfering with uh, things that the Venetians could do much better themselves? No, we're not. We are people working with and through Venice uh, with the expertise, uh, the passion, the absorption of 
Venetians with their own city. Uh, and we take uh, a, a humble approach towards our work. We don't barge in and tell them what to do. Um, we say we would like to assist you in this or that project for the restoration of a building uh, or a particular space or a particular uh, decorative scheme or something like that or a piece of sculpture. We've just done a very jolly sculpture, 18th century sculpture of uh, a, an allegorical figure with, a, with a, a rather curious elephant which you can see if you go into St. Mark's Square. Uh, it's just behind the uh, piazza. Um, this we do every year uh, after a general meeting of the private committees, the international committees. A folder is circulated of projects which the various committees can pick up and we work with the arts, art and architecture superintendency uh, to uh, make these things live again. We're not devoted to turning Venice into a theme park. Uh, we are dedicated to the idea of it as much as possible as a living, still a living city. Uh, but we are all too aware of what militates against that. By the way, if I can just blow the trumpet for Venice in Peril, we have leaflets outside <laughs> showing you how to join. Please join up. We need you. Uh, the world uh, needs Venice, and Venice needs the world. Um, but there are different ways of going about that. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'll... So oh, can I introduce you? Yeah. This is uh, Lizzie Fior, who is a wonderful architect from Muff Architects, and they did the British Pavilion at Venice Fiennale, which was, I think, fair to say, pretty controversial and provocative, loved by uh, Venetians themselves, because it was actually about where they were rather than about Venice, uh, rather than about Britain, a showcase of Britain. So Liz is going to talk to us and show... Are you going to show something? I am, actually. I'm going to stand over there because this isn't actually a literary festival. This is school. <laughs> You're the most awake students. I also teach architecture. And even the people at the back seem to be looking in this uh, direction. That's the LSE. We're, so, we're so serious. So I, can we, can we, yeah, uh, that's okay. Sorry, have, Should we put the lights down? Yeah, that'd be generous. Let's set the lights down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do at the back. Maybe. But um, I suppose I'm here to attest to the live lessons to be learnt from Venice. And... Um, you know, one little, and there's usefulness for us here in London. So, for example, the population currently, the permanent, popula the permanent population, and Jane, I think, will talk more about the fact 
that actually there are other populations who aren't just the tourists who come in every day, like the large number of school children that actually, and university students, that Venice, the city, the, the island, is a centre of a much larger number of people. But that, that the, the, the population that's always given, the figure's always given, is um, 60,000. And 60,000 people is actually the same as the number, is 60,000, the number of new housing units, which Boris says will be built in London over the next two years. And so we actually have quite a lot of lot in common with Venice, and not really about the idea of the authenticity of London, but the notion of London as a livable city and the importance of the fragile and the fact that shared spaces will become ever more contested and the, um, the pleasure of wandering you know, will be confronted. And so um, uh, you know, what I think is interesting is that the lived and the built are intertwined. It's not really a choice between one and the other. So I'm going to start with um, this fragment of Venice, which back in the 19th century um, was gathered with a little bit of architecture, as a big piece of architectural salvage. It was sitting in pieces, um, bought for not very much money. The whole transaction can be found in its files at the Victorian Albert. So this Misericordia comes from Venice, and it comes from that building, which is currently wrapped in scaffolding, where it's going to be renovated as a, a polyvalent space where um, fashion shows that it can be rented for a week or a day for events. Um, but it hadn't been uh, the um, it hadn't actually been the place of the squalor of misericordia, a charitable foundation for quite a while. In the 19th century, it was a gymnasium. But what did endure, and I think this is what's you know, extremely interesting, what was endured was the activity that happened there. And so the, um, the charitable foundation still exists now. You can go and have first lessons in first aid um, in the square. And also, if you're unlucky enough to find yourself a pauper and dying in Venice, they still um, give paupers funerals. And so that idea of what is um, fragile and endures beyond the fabric of buildings um, seems important. And this is what we're going to be bringing. Um, We've been commissioned to be part of an exhibition opening at the end of this month called All This Belongs to You at the V&A. And we're going to be bringing back um, the afterfiles of what happened to that place of origin of that fragment after it was packed in cases and brought to London. And, um, and so in a way, this is a, a reverse restitution. We're not taking the bit of stone back to Venice, but we're bringing to that piece of stone some of the activities that it would be, have been looking down on had it stayed where it was. So um, one of the first tests was working with the a very excellent campaigning charity, Women for Refugee Women, who every Monday they have um, an English class in near Old Street, and one Monday in November, 60 of them came to have their English class just next to 
um, the Misericordia. But um, so I'm now the very lucky collaborator of um, Jane de Moss's organisation, We Are Here Venice, a collaboration which began in 2010 when we were, um, we were given the uh, honour of being authors of the um, British Pavilion at the, Ven- the uh, Venice Biennale. And we called our contribution Villa Frankenstein because we took on um, Ruskin's sort of sadness. He said his greatest regret was writing The Stones of Venice. And the reason for it was when he looked at South London and those little brick Italianate villas, he saw Frankenstein's monsters of his of you know of its own making and took that responsibility and so when we made the um, decision that surely if a Brit is going to make a piece for the British Pavilion which incidentally is going to be the last building to flood it's typical isn't it it's actually on the highest point in Venice built on the rubble of monasteries when Napoleon made um, a little park for his officers, it was piled up, and uh, that was the one we chose as, as our pavilion. So as water laps around our toes, um, bricks will stay dry. Anyway, that was an aside. And so what we did was we filled it with Venice. We filled it with Venice knowledge, Venice collaborations and concerns, but with the um, intention that these were all lessons for London. So everything came from Venice, and the, uh, the only thing we bought from the UK, from Lancaster, was um, Ruskin's Venetian notebooks. And we entered into two collaborations, one with the um, writer, philosopher Wolfgang Sheppi, and the other with Jane de Mosto and um, We Are Here Venice. And so as you came into the first room, you saw the Stadium of Close Looking. And this is a model, because it's an architectural biennale, a one-tenth fragment of London's Olympic Stadium. We'd been working hard around the fringes of the Olympic Stadium, and that idea, we called it the Stadium of Close Looking, because the uh, principle was that when you make grand plans, big master plans, start with the assets that you have, and then build from there. And so we repurposed this this, um, model as a drawing studio so that it could be a place for that sort of looking. And then these two strips, the first is um, this wonderful collaboration with Volkan Sheppi where he put together an archive of photographs by um, Senor Gavinin over there on the right who worked for 40 years selling tickets to the Vaporettos but also taking photographs. And Wolfgang put together his photographs on the left and fragments from the notebooks, from, from Ruskin's notebooks, um, of this sort of, which were, were the, the pages that say done. When Ruskin find, considers he's found everything there is to find about a particular detail, he wrote done. So that was that collaboration. The second was working with Jane with the crazy endeavour of building a live salt marsh. Um, this hadn't been done before, but the life salt marsh is still there. That's Jane on the left, covered in mud, um, and has now been um, repositioned in the Giardini. And um, 
that idea of these two sorts of fragility, one being the fabric of the city itself and the other its ecology, and how the two entwine was a theme that we were able to draw on and bring back in a non-monstrous fashion, because by coincidence, the day after the, um, the Biennale concluded, I got a call from a developer, Stan Hope, um, a London developers, and I was invited to come and come for an interview to be commissioned uh, to design all the public realm for the new development, Ruskin Square. So it was a little bit of a coincidence. But I was able to go to that interview with um, a degree of fluency. And um, the reason it was called Ruskin Square, there were a number of options. I mean, Malcolm McLaren taught at the um, Croydon Art School, uh, but Ruskin's grandmother had a pub. You know, that, that was the connection. He also did clean the River Wandle um, as a memento to his mother. And, uh, but we, the great thing about Ruskin um, is he wrote so much. And so we were able to say to Stanhope, we're going to put the Ruskin into Ruskin Square. And uh, we're now in the year five of we're still working on that project. And there's always a quote whenever we want to argue to do something. And so this quote was, life is wealth. And we were able to start with the salt marsh, this very fragile ecosystem, and the value of that close looking where weeds suddenly become precious. And so this is the temporary project we did before um, construction started, where two full-size cricket nets are put into a wilderness and a path takes you just close enough to actually see what you already have before you start building the next um, brave new world. And my second of um, hundreds of lessons from Venice was the fact that in Venice there are very few playgrounds. Less than, probably, you know, probably less than ten. There's two that I could name today. But everywhere you can play. The bylaws are invisible posters stuck everywhere through the city that says that you are actually allowed to clamber over the fence. That child and the gentleman in the centre side are not related to each other. Um, Also, um, the fact that the pavement has risen and risen means there's this fantastic slide. This is the Giovanni San Paolo at the top. Somebody brings um, a bucket of chalks. And we were able to use this material um, when working with the uh, mayor's office um, to contribute to SPG 9, Special Planning Guidance 9, for playable landscapes. And you'll see that actually this, this material of the argument that children that play without space is misbehaviour, it doesn't actually have to be contained Rather, the city can be a playable landscape for all ages. And so this um, is the second lesson. Uh, this was built in 2012. This is out of Alley Park, opposite the Whitechapel Art Gallery, where we were able to, through an archaeological dig of 700 volunteers and the Museum of London, to make visible the original Whitechapel of St Mary at Ease. And that's these lumps of stone carved by the um, stonemasons of, build, of the Buildings Craft College, one of whom actually graduated and is 
working um, in Venice by coincidence. Green is a 19th century church, which on the 21st of February every year, thousands of people, um, about three to 5,000 people at midnight, queue to take a, a, um, a wreath to the secular martyr and the Shaheed Minar monument so in the corner. And so I think what I want to sort of present today is the fact that Venice sits as both um, a huge body of knowledge to draw on, a canary in the mine to sort of remind us um, of, the, of the, va- the value of the fragile and how when the broad brushstroke of the fat felt pen of master planning from a great distance makes plans for the place that we all live in, um, how valuable it is to look at what you've got. Thank you. Thank you very much. In, in case you didn't know, Venice was built on the salt brush. That's why this project is so, is so, uh, is, is so redolent. It's, uh, nature is, keeps trying to burst yeah. through <laughs> that, that work of human construction. Our last speaker is Jane DeMosta, who is the head of We Are Here Venice. I know it's not... A, um, a grammatical construction, but it's a very, it's a very, uh, 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 a very uh, eloquent one. And she's going to tell us a little about what she's doing in the city and uh, uh, what we are here, Venice, is about. I'm going to begin with something really good. Last September, for the annual Regatta Storica, we are here, Venice, got the palaces along the Grand Canal to revive the tradition of festive decorations. But instead of hanging their most precious tapestries, as they used to do in the centuries gone by, they were given these flags instead. This awareness-raising campaign is based on positive reinforcement of one of the cardinal principles on which Venice is founded. Venice is the lagoon, and if I... Um, it's not just, Venice wasn't just founded on salt marshes, it still lives off the salt marshes. Venice and the lagoon are inextricably connected, and to save Venice, you have to protect the lagoon. This was another way of saying no to further destruction of the lagoon to make way for the giant cruise ships. There'll be more about that later. The lagoon is Venice's buffer against the fury of the sea. Its twice-daily tides still act as the sewage system. It supports vital ecological processes, fishermen's livelihoods, and there's still 600 or so fishermen that live off what they catch in the lagoon in using various techniques. There's, the, lagoon is the, the Venice Lagoon is the largest wetland in the Mediterranean and Italy's most important coastal ecosystem. A lot has changed since the 15th century, which is shown in the top map. But the sinuous shapes of the tidal channels and salt marsh islets are still very evident in the former urbis of Venice. I mean, the Grand Canal is the most obvious evidence of that. 
and over more than a thousand years, much attention has been given to maintaining the physical and ecological integrity of the lagoon. In the 16th century, the main rivers had to be diverted away from the lagoon. That was like decades and decades of digging to stop the lagoon from silting up completely. And before they did the decades of digging, they had decades of arguing amongst different proponents in Venice. There were some that were in favour of letting Venice just silt up like other lagoon systems do over time. And Venice could, instead of being a, a maritime empire, could have developed its agricultural powers. Or the argument that one was led by a, an engineer of the time called Cristoforo Sabadino, who argued that, no, by diverting the rivers, Venice could carry on its um, trading activities, and that was going to give the city a better future. So, the la- so I'm glad that the latter argument won, <laughs> And, but we are at a similar juncture now, and that's what I want to talk about. The salt marsh cover in the lagoon is less than a third of what it was just a hundred years ago. Rising water levels are threatening the building fabric. You see in that picture that I just took quickly the other day when there was an exceptional low tide rather than the high tide that everybody talks about, you can see all the things that have had to be, that are happening to that building and that have happened in other places around Venice because of the changing water level. You can see in the alleyway just on the left that they've actually had to raise the ground level and have made some extra steps. Also, the main doorway to that building has some steps going in so the ceiling is less high inside. And you can also see this very chronic issue for the whole fabric of Venice, which is where the green line is, that's algae, and that represents the average high water level of the canals. And um, underneath the green, you can't even see it anymore, is the Istrian stone foundation that most buildings in Venice have, and that's relatively impermeable. If water goes above into the brickwork, it it rises into the... You know, it, it seeps into the bricks... Then as the tide goes down and the air dries out the water in the bricks, the salts are left behind. And I don't know how much you know about chemistry, but you know how the volume increases as the salts crystallise, and that turns the bricks to powder. And the Venice in Peril project, if Jonathan wants to talk more about it, there was so the um, social housing restoration that they did. It was years two years of um, tomato drippers, you know, like from vegetable gardens, had to literally wash those walls before they could start the main restoration. Um, And and there we see how average water level in Venice has already risen by about 30 centimetres since the tide gauge was positioned at Punta della Salute in 1870. And also what's, what's important to see in the bottom right graph is how the frequency of medium high tides, that's 80 centimetres relative to the tide gauge zero, but I won't bore you with the technicalities. Just know that at 80 centimetres, 14% of the city is, is underwater. That includes the atrium to the basilica, the narthex. It includes areas of Piazza San Marco. It includes um, one side of the Rialto Bridge. A lot of important areas in Venice and for one reason or another get flooded. So even if the mobile barriers ever get built, 
if they ever function properly, Venice is still living with this kind of chronic water level issue. I'm racing a bit, but there'll be time to return to anything in the discussion. This slide, courtesy of the Port Authority, shows where we are now. The greeny-yellow line is the industrial channel that was dredged at the end of the 60s for tanker traffic. Porto Marghera, inside the big white circle, was one of the most most significant petrochemical processing zones in Europe until about the 1980s. The blue line shows the current route of cruise ships through the through Venice to the passenger terminal that's inside the smaller white ring and that's where they can have seven or eight gigantic cruise ships moored at any one time. The yellow dotted line is where the port has proposed to dredge a new channel to make way for the cruise traffic. For me the, the easiest way to make you understand this is when I was growing up they were um, they were Uh, planning the M25 and getting trucks off the embankment and it would be like getting the trucks off the embankment and instead having them cut across Hyde Park on a dual carriageway. The central lagoon since the, the 1970s has been reduced to what I call an underwater desert by all the erosion caused by the channel itself and also the passage of individual ships create a different kind of wave. It's a little mini tsunami that Richard said we can see the film about that at the end of my talk. It's terrifying what we'll thi- what, to think what will happen to Venice if the new channel is dredged right up to the edge of the centre of the city. No other ports in the Mediterranean are so close to the residential and historic areas of the cities they serve. Why Venice? So another petition has just been launched to ask the Prime Minister to withdraw the dredging plan. It's our last resort. And I ask any of you that has a smartphone to please note down the email address. It was too long to put up the link to the petition and you can't get there with a a keyword search on AVAS. But if you send an email saying link to this address, somebody will send you the link to sign the petition and and Venice really, really needs you to help us communicate this because, as you know, the population is plummeting about as fast as water levels are rising. And thinking about um, Polly's talk at the beginning, you know, who, what, what is an authentic Venetian? I can as- assure you um, people think I'm one and I've only been living in Venice for 20 years and the, and the Venetians think that an authentic Venetian is anybody who loves Venice. So any of you who love Venice and want to be Venetians, please sign the petition and tell all your friends to do the same too. Um, so here you see how, why, um, how the, the Democrat, this terrible fall in the population, especially in the historic centre of Venice, um, and the lagoon is keeping more or less constant. That big step change at, in, at the end of the 90s was caused by a part of the um, lagoon population, Cavallino, breaking off to be a separate municipality. And even the whole of Venice, you know, including the mainland portion, which is Mestre and Marghera, even that population is starting to decline slightly. Um, 
and uh, we're about to have elections for a new mayor and this rate of, of, ch- of fall in the local population for the historic centre of Venice, this is going to be the last election if the trends don't change where the vote of the Venetians as in the people who live in the Venice that the tourists visit will actually count in the final result of the election. It's kind of scary to think of that. So what we're seeing, because of the kind of piracy that's associated with the mass tourism and the business interests in that, is that people, in, the people are starting to lose their pride in being Venetian, and Venice is losing that attentive, loving eye that only an occupant of a place can provide. The fate of the city, its precious heritage, traditions and wisdom, are now in the hands of these jobsworth administrators and bureaucrats, which are spread between a fragmented array of public institutions, some as far away as Rome, and nearly all of them fighting with each other. But the Venetians are also resilient. Here's a few snaps from some recent meetings. And a lot is being achieved, despite what I've said so far. The issues are complex, but it's not rocket science. And sometimes we even have the answers, and our work as activists just means finding a way to get the decision-makers to want to listen. The top left picture is in the very grand um, municipality of Venice, Cafarsetti, and where we were supposed to meet with the sub-commissioner to talk about what's happening at the Arsenale. And he was, the sub-commissioner kept us waiting, waiting, waiting. So instead of huffing and puffing, we just sat there at the table and for two hours we had our meeting right there in much greater comfort than we'd normally be able to have to speak to each other. The picture on the right is Renzo Scarpa, somebody who I've worked with very closely on the um, dredging, anti-dredging campaign. There I arranged for him to get interviewed by CNN and that's in my studio. And at the bottom that's a, a... in a new bar at the train station, a kind of a women's meeting. So um, here, this is something nice I want to tell you about that I'm working very hard on now, and it comes, it only came about due to that everyday Venetian life type of thing, because this um, workshop is right next door to where one of my children used to go to nursery school, and it's a social cooperative that's, um, I hate to say, um, works just with the dregs. They take highly marginalised people who might be handicapped, refugees, homeless, or all of those things, and they work also with um, scraps of fabric that would otherwise be thrown away. The interesting thing is is that they're very creative, their designs are brilliant, and also they have a wonderful way of getting people to work with them and the fabric, it helps that the fabrics are precious because they come from the two remaining textile producers in the historic part of Venice, Fortuni and Bevinacqua. And um, the other thing that's very good is this, the new Venice Gardens Foundation, which, um, re- which is going to be restoring the Giardinetti Reali right next to Piazza San Marco. And it's hard to believe that for a couple of decades, these gardens have been in a total state of abandonment. They have the public loose, the waste collection people had their rubbish bins there, and now it's going to be a a wonderful new garden, 
And not only that, part of their remit is also to restore lots of other gardens around Venice. So when Liza comes back, um, she'll not only see the kids playing in, in the campo at Santi Giovanni and Paolo, but they'll also be in some more gardens. That's it. I want to show you the film of what happens it's when short. a cruise ship goes by. Yeah. I think we can, it's not noisy, is it, Jane? Anyway, can we can put people to talk. Huh. Um, people to start one. putting their fantastic um, points of view together in their heads. You, it's only two minutes long. Yeah. If no, you want sure, the noise. Sure. sure, yes, but noise. This isn't a cruise ship, it's a tanker, but it's going along the channel that is the new route for the cruise ships, and even though it doesn't change anything if it's a cruise ship, it's just that the cruise ships are bigger than this, and so the way they move the water is even more. It's the same physics as what creates a, a, a tidal, a tsunami, is that first it sucks the water away from the shore, a minute. That's a lot when it's taking away the sediments and, and the edges of the salt marsh. And now you'll see all the water rushing back to the shore. Richard, actually, we're going to leave down to take a place in the chart. We're going to pretend to be the chair. Because I um, was really lucky... Can we get that to the... I was lucky enough to um, go back to Venice in 2012, um, care of Teatro Mundi, the um, organisation which um, Richard hosts. Can I go back to my... my yeah. Uh, because um, Richard hosted a conversation... 
and um, and Teatro Mundi hosted the conversation where we were able to um, bring together Venetians and a real mixture of Venetians to talk about Venice. And what was interesting in 2010... we wanted in different ways to offer the British Pavilion for Venice to take advantage of the British Pavilion with the two meanings of the words take advantage, you know, both to exploit, but the same way that you take advantage of a sunny day. <laughs> and so um, into the pavilion came for a day. It was the one day, it was the last day when you didn't have to have tickets. Um, a, a, a succession of conversations is included... Um, it was a broad church. I think what Jane didn't, didn't sort of give over with We Are Here is they extend to all these small associations of Venice as well as the so-called players. And that day, um, there are both um, experts, scientific experts, but there are also the anarchists who um, launched the referendum against the privatisation of water, ironically enough. And what was interesting was at that... Um, day of conversations was this sudden moment when somebody in the audience said it's ironic that suddenly we're here together because um, Jane had brought together these small different organisations who were sort of fighting for a chance of the platform and they said it's ironic that it took the British to bring (laughs) us together in the same room which I think you know in a way Jonathan's hinted at to be able to um, articulate how much we share. And I think that in, um, you know, what was amazing was those same individuals came together with a much bigger platform, which was this huge uh, uh, auditorium in the Arsenale, hosted by Teatro Mundi. And so the second conversation began to talk about making plans and making plans for that, uh, you know, going back to Richard's first uh, sentence about this notion of values, of thinking about values and how to make plans for what might happen next to, say, the 20% of city that is the Arsenale. So it's quite amazing um, what works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and uh, this idea of the generosity of the bringing together and bringing people together, I'd like um, Richard to now talk about. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Madam Chairman. (laughs) Can we have the lights up? Is that what you are going to mention? I am going to. Yeah, good. Yes. How did you know this? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you the backstory to my organization getting involved in this, a very personal one for me. I wrote a book on, uh, I study craftsmanship and I wrote a book on craftsmanship. And I went uh, to Venice for, the Italians are, um, uh, northern Italians are great industrial craftsmen and fabricators. And I went to a conference in Venice uh, just after my book came out. And uh, there were your glass blowers glass makers and your mask makers at this conference and they said well yes there are, there's a lot of Venetian glass and Venetian masks sold in Venice but they're made by Chinese not by Venetians and this is a huge it's part of the problem about why Venice is dying which is how to keep 
its craft economy uh, going uh, outside the boundaries of tourism. And it's not just historic crafts like uh, glass blowing and, and, um, and mask making. But the area around Venice was the center for all sorts of much more modern crafts. Many of the glassblowers, for instance, made scientific flasks of a complexity and shape uh, that's hard to, to manufacture, indeed almost impossible to manufacture uh, electronically. It takes too, much, takes too much knowledge about how glass flows to do this. So there is a future for these people, but tourism is, uh, is eclipsing it for, for these craftsmen. So the project that Tatramundi has launched is twofold. One is to just get, uh, I'm, I'm an adopted Brit, but so this is even more ironic, that, that this British organization is getting groups in Venice to talk to each other who don't talk together, and especially at the Biennale, which is the ultimate high-class tourist event in which many Venetians themselves have little to do with, unless if you're selling pizza or you run Harry's Bar, where many of these people seem to congregate. Um, so we are doing this, we're keeping having these meetings, but we are focusing in particular about arts and crafts outside the fabric of tourism. That is, how can we mobilize, how can we use all this incredible Italian knowledge about handwork and high quality machine work, which also occurs in northern Italy. How can we mobilize that in the city so that it's not a prisoner of its Chinese American uh, and British tourists. So that is, this project is called Culture Beyond Tourism, and, but it's culture with a broad brush about people who are making, uh, making things. I hope this entire presentation to you gives you the idea that it's, of course it's very important to look at all those works of art. They're a glory, they're part of world tradition now. But as a city, this city is more than simply the uh, um, is simply more than a museum. <coughs> it's not a museum city. You going to show something else? No, this is just pictures of the wonderful architecture in the background. You As you want. speak. Oh. It's like TV. It's like TV. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we have, we have some time to, you know, all of us know in various ways lots and lots about Venice, but I'm sure you've got lots and lots of questions. I've been told, as part of this sheet, this is the, the worst thing about the LSE, is that uh, its bureaucrats rule our time. Uh, like this, that so we must leave in 15 minutes so that another cultural event can be exposed. But we can have a moment in the foyer. But we could, we could talk in the foyer while you're signing books. But are there any burning questions right now that as a group you, uh, you would like to present to us as a group or 
questions you want to ask us, or comments, brief comments that you would like to make. Who would like to begin? Don't be shy. Yes. Speak up. Can, oh, wait, somebody's coming with the microphone. So wonderful. So many of the perils uh, that you've all talked about today tend to seem to me to be very uh, socio-economic or cultural kind of perils, uh, the danger of tourism, the danger of cruise ships. Have we... This may be naive, I, mean, I may just not know what's already known. Is the kind of sheer engineering of Venice, is that a solved problem now, or is that still a... Okay. No. Not in the, <laughs> in the slightest. I, maybe I was too quick, but it, Venice is very much a, a close sailing close to the edge from a um, physical and ecological point of view. I mean, the picture of the house with the water level going up and seeping into the bricks, I mean, that causes, after a while, that the house will fall down because with the stronger currents in the canals due to more and more erosion out in the lagoon, which means that more water comes in and out with each tidal exchange. I mean, there isn't a tide like the Thames, but there is, you know, a 60-centimetre change in water level twice a day. And if that water comes in and out with a faster and faster current because there's less lagoon morphology slowing the water down, it, will, it washes away the, you know, the cement that holds the bricks together over time. More and more water seeps into the walls of the buildings. They fall down faster or they constantly need to be replastered, etc. We're conscious uh, in Venice in Peril of uh, the, this as a constant danger, um, <clears throat> a constant... Um, the the I, we are uh, we are working constantly on the edge. For example, we have what what Jane has been talking about with the uh, the uh, chemical reaction on the bricks uh, is affecting one of our projects very strongly at the moment. We're restoring. Some of you may know uh, the extraordinary monument to the sculptor Antonio Canova in the great basilica of the Frari. When you go into the Frari and you turn to your left, this whacking great marble pyramid with allegorical figures, an open door, um, uh, a nude male figure, the sleeping genius, uh, the lion of Venice, etc., etc. We are restoring this. It will have to be taken to pieces, dismantled completely, all the marble slabs immersed in special tanks, etc., etc. But we're all too conscious of the fact that we are working against uh, the... Um, uh, the um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, a degradation of the, uh, the built surround of this and the way in which the brickwork on which against which it stands and the brick plinth on which the whole of this extraordinary confection stands and it's one of the most remarkable examples of neoclassical uh, sculpture um, by six different sculptors who took part they were all Canova's pupils that uh, this is uh, um, uh, degrading 
almost faster than we can keep up with it. Um, uh, and so there is this uh, real sense of peril and emergency uh, in which we're all working. Uh, oh, gosh, we have so many questions. Uh, how about this, can you run to this person in the back? Quickly, quickly. <laughs> You're young. You can Hi, thank you. I just, uh, you didn't mention anything about the, the communities that come into Venice every day, and I, I'm thinking particularly here of the school children and also um, the, the students that come to the university. It's a kind of huge community, and I've only seen it in passing, but it struck me as a very vibrant community, and I just wondered if you could sort of put them in the context of all of this. I think, well, I think we did mention it in that that 60,000 has to be seen as this much bigger. If you like, put a glass bell on top of Venice in the middle of an average day, the actual, res- the actual population in Venice is at least three times the, you know, the 60 or so thousand that are you know, registered residents. When, and a an very important component of, of that total figure is the commuting population, which is made up of not just the large number of students, but also, of course, the people who come into what, to Venice as commuting workers. And the, then you add on to that, of course, the day trippers and, and other kinds of visitors. And people that it used to be, like, um, f- five or six years ago, when I worked on a publication called The Venice Report, which was published by Venice in Peril, and, and we looked at demographics in detail and the change in use of buildings, a very significant number of so-called city users were the people also coming to um, important offices and headquarters that are in Venice. But with each minute that passes, another office closes down and moves to the mainland. So that's one of the issues that we have as residents. Like if the, you know, the public administration can't even try and do their bit to keep the offices in Venice and at least have those people coming and going. You know, it's hard to try and work against the, the trend. I, I just want to add a very brief uh, note to that about uh, tourists. Uh, most tourists to Venice are day trippers. That is, they come in, to, uh, they come in, in the morning and they leave at night. Um, uh, many of the people on these huge cruise ships, the scale is very, very difficult to imagine. They're enormous. Uh, descend from the boat, they wander around, and then they, they leave. Which means that the, um, it's a different kind of uh, tourist invasion than we have here in London, where tourists spend an average of three to four and a half days here. In Venice, they spend eight to ten hours. So the question of, uh, it's like a, you have to imagine the city is like an accordion that expands when it's daylight and then contracts when it's it's dark. You noticed the quality of the silence in Venice for for that reason, among so many others. Right. Um, um, And it's worth pointing out, I think, that uh, the specious argument made on behalf of the cruise ships that they bring in uh, 
squillions, mega pelucas to, to the city, uh, is undermined by the fact that an enormous number of the, of, the, um, of the passengers never actually get off the ships. Um, they are an audience, really, sitting there, uh, as it were, watching the city going about its uh, uh, business in this very small, central, uh, impacted area around uh, the uh, uh, Piazza San Marco. Let's take one more question in the room, and then we'll go outside uh, obeying our time masters, and we can talk more. Yes. Where are you saying you. Um, One reason I think the world uh, increasingly cherishes Venice is it shows us what's possible in a city without cars, and actually a beautiful city without cars. Yeah. So I wonder the panel's views on what other cities can uh, learn from that. I love the example of the kind of playable city, which is gaining currency. Secondly, a quick kind of suggestion. I think Venice also perhaps, as well as getting people to have sympathy for Venice um, and its plight, you know, there's a kind of victimhood of of climate change. So I wonder if the climate change, you know, animating some climate change activism could uh, could actually build from the asset of how much people cherish Venice, because otherwise it can seem very detached. uh, the, The effects aren't felt at home. It's about Bangladesh or... Uh, islands in the Indian Ocean, but could that be an angle to, to explore? Well, it, it not only could be, it, it is. I mean, this is a kind of natural experiment in uh, forms of climate change that are going to affect uh, not only places like Bangladesh, but parts of the English coast, large parts of the East Coast in the United States, and so on. And uh, some of the chemical issues are uh, chemical issues in places where you wouldn't expect it uh, to be. So uh, this is yes, please. The salt marshes are very significant from a climate change point of view because not only do they absorb, if you have more salt marsh, you take more carbon out of the air because they absorb a lot of. But actually, they're four times more efficient at doing that than tropical rainforest. So um, Venice could be, if I had my way, at the forefront of adaptation and mitigation to climate change because then as the the, the salt marsh vegetation dies, it compacts underneath in in an anaerobic environment where it's very slow to decompose, so it doesn't even put that carbon back into the atmosphere for a very long time. It's wonderful. So... Um, so people are starting to figure that out, and um, there Orleans, are some. Isn't it? Mm. New Orleans. They have New Orleans. Here. Yeah. So um, people come and study and, and look at the Venice salt marsh more, and I hope that that will then feed back into the Venetian authorities, and and they'll dredge less and leave more room for the marshes. <laughs> I think one of the most important, valuable. Uh, lessons that Venice can teach us is the simple use of public space um, and the way in which in uh, a city like this one with its uh, obsessive, nowadays obsessive verticality um, uh, the, uh, a city like Venice where uh, the life of a campo uh, the, the, the ordinary squares uh, um, is still in certain places by a miracle still vigorous 
uh, and intense if you go to Campo Santa Margarita or um, uh, Santa Maria Formosa. Uh, uh, life goes on uh, at a human level, um, at a human scale. Um, and this is something which uh, Venice still has to teach us and is an immensely valuable lesson. Well, thank you all for coming. I hope this is, uh, I've learned things and I hope you have too. May I say that Polly is going to be signing books. I think you're going to be signing books just outside and we will all be outside as well, hopefully having a drink and, uh, and uh, so we can talk more. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>